0: Morning, church.
1: Well, if you have your Bible, of you please stand for the reading of God's Word. And then open to Luke chapter fourteen. Luke chapter fourteen. We'll be starting verse twenty-five all the way to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter fourteen. All right. There went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost? whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else while the other is yet A great way off he sendeth an embassage, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt hath lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear.
0: Bibles this morning. And we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke. I've been doing a series in the parables of Jesus Christ, his teachings. Jesus Christ mastered the parabolic method more than any who has ever lived. Jesus spoke in parables. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us of many of His parables. This is part 20 in the series, and I'm just getting going, it seems, because there are so many parables. So, today's message on the parables of Jesus, I'm entitling, very simply, Count the Cost. I want you to know exactly what I'm here to say today. I want all of us to count the cost and whether we should believe in and follow Jesus Christ as his disciple. Luke chapter 14, I would like for us just to read one verse, because this passage was read, but I'd like to read verse number 28 as we begin. If you have your Bible open, you may feel free to read it with me. Luke chapter 14, verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower... Sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. So now, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace, as we have one life to live. And Lord, if you are who you say you are, and that is the Lord of heaven and earth that we just heard in song, and we've been singing of you Heaven's king, coming to earth, incarnate in flesh, to be our sacrifice to die, but not to stay in a grave, but to rise. And we talk to you today, Lord, because you are risen, king of kings. And so, Lord, I pray you'll help each of us to take this message very seriously and count the cost and consider that we ought, we must Use our one life for your glory. So work a deep work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been really challenged by the life of Ernest Shackelford when in 1915, he took a group of men on the Imperial Transatlantic Expedition. Not long after they began this journey, they were trapped In the ice of Antarctica. And there the ship was. They had to figure out what to do. What had these men signed up to do? Ernest Shackelford sent out, it it is said he sent out a men-wanted ad. And in that ad, he asked for men to sign up for a hazardous journey with small wages Bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success, signed Sir Ernest Shackleton. And so they signed up to possibly suffer gangrene, frostbite, hysteria, and even die. So why would they do it? Why would, they, why would these men sign up to join Shack, Shackle, uh, Shackleton in this great expedition? Do you know how many men applied? It is said about 5,000 men applied. He was only needed about 28. But 5,000 accepted that invitation. And he weeded them down. And 28 went on this expedition. Because people are looking for a greater purpose for which to live. People are tired of their boring lives. People want to be gripped with a passion and a cause that is bigger than themselves. But soon, when they went down into Antarctica, they were trapped in the powerful ice. And literally, millions of tons of ice was around that ship, slowly crushing it. And they did not get close to achieving their goal. Their goal was to literally go through the, the, the continent of Antarctica. They wanted to, to transverse the, the continent of Antarctica from one, uh, one point to the other in what would have been the greatest polar journey to date at that time. And they didn't succeed But it became one of the great adventures of all time. If you get a book called Endurance, and that was the name of their ship, it's truly an incredible story of survival and how Shackleton brought these men back to safety. It's an amazing story. But they did not fulfill their goal. They counted the cost, but not fully. They didn't fully understand what it would take for a wooden ship to To do what they were asking it to do. And it couldn't do it when it got trapped in the ice. So today, with that in mind, I want us to talk about an even greater expedition. And it's the expedition of following Jesus Christ. It's the expedition of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The greatest human experience you can embark on is the discipleship expedition. To follow Jesus Christ. And to follow Him, it's not for faith-hearted people. It's not for the half-hearted. It's not for the shallow in faith. It's not for the ones who have a superficial idea of who Jesus is. You have to understand who He is and what He's calling us to do. In this passage of Scripture that we read, three times Jesus said, if you don't meet a particular condition, you cannot be my disciple. You should underline those three Similar statements. It's in verse 26. Jesus said, You cannot be my disciple if you don't have a proper relationship to your relationships. And he says it in verse number 27, You cannot be my disciple if you do not take the cross. And he says it finally down in verse 33, You cannot be my disciple if you do not forsake all. So we're going to be looking at this this morning counting the cost to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, I love the Bible. I love God's Word. And this is an amazing portion of Scripture in the Gospel of Luke. We're in the middle of a portion of Scripture that details the Perean ministry of Jesus Christ. This is what Luke specializes in, if you will, the Perean ministry. Ministry Now, Matthew and Mark tell us a lot of the Galilean ministry and give about one chapter of this Perean ministry. John really doesn't tell us much about it, a little bit, but Luke tells us, as we see here, almost 10 chapters in Luke, and some of the most famous stories known to men are in this portion of Scripture, only found in Luke, like the story of the Good Samaritan. Like the parable of the prodigal son and other parables and other teachings that are world famous that have literally changed millions of lives are in this Perean ministry. Now, the Perean ministry goes from Luke 9, verse 51, down to Luke 19. And you say, Why do we call it Perean ministry? Because Perea is this area outside on the other side of the, of the Jordan River. This is the area where John the Baptist had been baptizing. So this is kind of where Jesus started his earthly ministry when he was baptized down here in this area of Perea. But now as he's getting toward the time where he would die, this is the last three and a half months of Jesus' earthly life. He ministers in and around Perea, going also into Jerusalem and back, but kind of in this region, not going back to Galilee, where he spent much of the early period of his ministry. So Luke really focuses in more than any other gospel, and it makes his gospel so unique. And really, I think Luke might be my favorite gospel because of this Perean ministry and all the amazing teachings, parables, and discourses of Jesus. But in this passage of Scripture, what we see is, and what we have to remember is this. Where has Jesus been in the beginning of Luke 14? Where was he? He was at a dinner table with Pharisees. And he basically has just told the Pharisees that national Israel is going to reject me. That Jesus will be, and he has been rejected by the elite class, if you will, the ruling class, the, the religious class of Israel, even to this day. Jesus predicts that when he says in verse number 24, I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden, that was invited, shall taste of my supper, because they made excuse not to come. So Jesus said, go out, into the, go out into the streets and lanes of the city and tell the, tell the Jewish people that are blind, that can't walk, that have maimed limbs, and that are poor. Tell them, because Jesus wants His house to be what? Remember we said that last week? He wants His house to be filled. Jesus wants heaven to be filled with souls. So He said, go out into the, into the streets and lanes. And they said, well, we did that in their still room. Then he said, go even further and go out into the highways and go out into the hedges and talk to the travelers of the nations of the world. Talk to the thieves that are hiding out in those hedges and tell them to come. And they're invited into my kingdom. So Jesus wants his house to be filled. National Israel will reject him, but there's a remnant of Jews who will believe in him. And then there are many Gentiles who will believe in Him. He wants His house to be filled. But now, He gets up from the dinner table, and notice our first verse in verse 25. As He gets up out of the dinner table, where He's talking to these, these rigid religious Pharisees, He goes out into those streets, into the lanes where the poor and the lame and the blind are. And it says in verse number 25, what? That great multitudes were with Him. So, Jesus is no longer talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to the religious people. He's talking to the common people. And it was the common people who what? Who heard him gladly. Hanging on his, these people would hang on his every word. They wanted to know, what is this man teaching? And you know what Jesus teaches? You have to count the cost. If you're going to really be a follower and disciple of mine. It's serious business. And it's almost as if he's trying to thin out the ranks, which is quite amazing. He wants his house to be filled, but he he wants his house to be filled with true disciples and followers of him. And it's as if, remember, and God often does weed out the ranks, so to speak. Remember remember when Gideon was going to go fight the, the Midianites? And I believe there were 135,000 Midianites. Gideon was outnumbered with 32,000 men. 32,000 versus 135,000. That was the odds. And God told Gideon, Gideon, you have too many. And so through a number of tests, being afraid, not being alert, the, third, the, the, the number of Israelites went from 32,000 to 300. Now it's 300 against 135,000. And God said to Gideon, now you're ready to fight. Now the Lord wants his house to be filled. And he loves you. And he loves the whole world. But he wants true followers of Jesus Christ who will count the cost. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he was preaching, and he was preaching such hard things. Multitudes were following him. He had walked on the water. He had fed the multitudes. People were following him. Many, t- many people were following him for the wrong motive. So Jesus thins the ranks, and he starts speaking hard things. This is in John chapter 6. And people started to go away from him. And Jesus even asked Peter at that time, he said, Peter, will you also go away and Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But Jesus often spoke in such a way that it would challenge people to the point that the shallow, the superficial, the faint of heart, the half heart wouldn't follow through. And you know, what, we see it in church even to these days. We see people follow the Lord for a little while, like the seed that springs up, But then when tribulation and trials come, they just go back. They don't continue. That's why I challenged this beautiful couple today dedicating their child to the Lord to continue because so many don't. And now let me also say in this passage, the the controversy is, is Jesus talking about salvation or is he making a difference or a distinction between salvation and discipleship? I'm not going to go deep into this, but it is an important thing to at least say that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not born again, Jesus simply said you must be born again. That means you must put your faith in Jesus, you must change your mind toward who he is and toward your sin and who God is, You change your mind. That's repentance. Repentance is a change of mind, which will lead to a change of will. And then you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's the one who died on the cross for you and raised from the dead. And salvation happens when we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. Salvation is absolutely free. You don't work for it. You don't pay for it. You receive salvation. The gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift through Jesus Christ. Discipleship and surrender is another step, if you will. So I do believe he's making a distinction between salvation and discipleship. And I follow Warren Wiersbe on this, who's a very able and conservative Bible translator and commentator. And he said that Jesus is making a distinction between salvation and discipleship. And here's the distinction I would make. Salvation is when a person believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again for them, and they receive him as their Savior. Discipleship and surrender is when a person then believes that I died with Christ, and I am raised with Christ. To be a serious follower of him. So I believe that's more what Jesus is talking about here. I could be wrong, but that's my position on this passage. Count the cost of discipleship. Now, so we want to look this morning at three illustrations Jesus gives from this passage. There's three words we want to look at and three truths. So I'm hopefully going to get through this in pretty quick fashion. I'm going to get bogged down a little bit here and there. But three illustrations, three words, three truths, but the one powerful, unusual phrase is in verse number 28. That's our theme. We have to count the cost. So, the three illustrations. The first illustration is the illustration of being a builder. And Jesus simply says about this builder, He says, which of you intending to build a tower, don't sit it down first and count the cost whether he have sufficient to finish. Lest if he, if he doesn't finish it, people are going to mock him and they're going, to, they're going to ridicule him. This is easy for us to understand. Before you start a building project, you have to consider your resources and you have to count the cost of what it's going to take to build what you're planning to build. Now here, it, it's interesting, it's a tower. Landowners in Jesus' day... And Jesus always spoke to the people, so he understood exact, they understood exactly what he was talking about. Landowners in Jesus' day, especially farmers, on their property, in order for them to have safety and security of their crops, they would build towers. Jesus references this in one of his other parables in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. These towers would guard their property from potential thieves and invaders, and it would And it would allow their watchmen when they went into the towers to see in every direction to see if there was any danger all around. And so the point of this illustration is that we are a what? We are a builder. The Lord is looking for those who have counted the cost and said, Yes, Lord, I want to engage with you in building what you are building. Now, what is Jesus building? What is Jesus building? He's building his kingdom. He's building his church. I will build my church. So we're builders in a great work. The second illustration is battlers, I say. We're battlers in a great warfare. This is an interesting illustration because he talks about a king who goes to make war against another king. But then he finds out that the other king has 20,000 And he only has 10. Now those are pretty good odds compared to what Gideon had. But still, Jesus in this parable is saying, if you're going to go to that warfare, you have to count the cost whether you want to do this. Because war is serious business. War is the greatest expense we can humanly make. Because people die and shed their blood in war. War is a terrible thing. So Jesus here, though, in this parable, in this portion of the parable, I don't believe he's... The, the, the point of the parable isn't to... He's not teaching us to, to make peace with the devil. Okay, We're in a war, right? We're, in, we're, we're soldiers. We know that that's a common metaphor in the New Testament, right? That we're soldiers for Jesus Christ. And we're in a great battle against who? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the devil and against the forces of darkness in this world. And it's a real warfare. The devil is real, but Jesus, when he says, he says else, when he he realizes he's outnumbered, it says he sends an ambassador, an ambassage, or an ambassador, and desires conditions of peace. So Jesus is not saying we're to make peace with the devil. <laughs> That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is to know yourself, know how big you your your resources are, the size of your army, know your enemy, know your enemy, And count the cost. Count the cost. That's the theme, to count the cost. Because we don't want to engage in a battle and get defeated in that battle. We're in a great battle, by the way, against Satan as well. We're against the world system of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And we're against our own flesh. We're in a battle that is a very difficult battle to fight in this world. We're battlers in a great warfare, but, and, and this has often been used. I love Charles Spurgeon, a great pastor from England, had one of the largest churches in the world in England in the mid-1800s, and he had a magazine, called and he called it The Sword and the Trowel, which took these ideas, the sword being a, a battler or a fighter, a warrior, and a trowel being a builder. And of course, he kind of gets this as well from, from the, uh, the book of Nehemiah. So we combat sin and we labor for the Lord. Now I'm going to skip over that. So not only are we to be a builder and a battler, but we're to be salt. And here's the third illustration of this passage. And I believe this, this idea is often overlooked because it's last, but I believe it's last because it ties together the building and the battling. Because notice what Jesus said in verse 34. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? In other words, once the salt loses its saltiness, can it get it back? No, it can't get it back once it loses its saltiness. He said, it is neither good for the land, it's not good for the dunghill. Men cast it out. So, we're to be salt. And I put here, in a great friendship. Now, I have to explain this. This does require some explanation because I believe this is an all important illustration. It ties together the first two that we looked at of being a builder and a battler. So what do we, what did Pastor Carmine say earlier about salt? He said that it's used for preservative. Absolutely right. So salt represents at least these four things we could say. It represents purity. It represents preservation. It represents perpetuity, in other words, it it causes food to last, and it was a precious commodity. Do you know that some were paid a salary, and our word salary, we we actually get from the, the idea of salt money, because people were actually paid in salt as part of their income, because salt was so valuable. Now, why was salt so valuable in This period of time. Because how valuable is your refrigerator? (laughs) So salt was the ancient refrigerator. I don't know about you, but if there's ever a blackout, the first thing I think of is, oh no, the food is going to spoil and we need refrigeration. I mean, that's a key point. Well, they didn't have that. So salt, in a sense, was their ancient refrigeration. That's why... Even somebody would say of a worker, is he worth his salt? (laughs) Because salt was a precious and it was a valuable commodity. Now, I believe to understand this passage, we have to, and I don't want you to turn because I don't want to lose you, but if you could stick with me, we're going to look at a few scriptures to help us understand this illustration or parabolic illustration of salt. So read this with me. Jesus is speaking here about salt. He says, For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Now, why did he say that? Every sacrifice will have salt on it. Why did he say that? We'll see in a moment. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will you season it? So it's similar to what we just read. But now here's... I believe the crux of the matter of salt, what Jesus says here, he says, have salt, where? In yourself. yourself. Now, why would he say that? Have salt in yourself. Well, what Pastor Carmine said was good. We're called to be salt. Have salt in yourself. And then he says, have peace one with another. Now, again, what does salt have to do with peace? So the questions that I have here are: What does salt have to do with sacrifice? Sacrifi- every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. And what does salt have to do with having peace with one another? I don't understand that. I have I have I have Morton salt at home. It hasn't given me peace with anybody that I can remember. So why what why was salt a matter of having peace one with another? Well, in the Old Testament sacrifice called the meal offering or in the King James it says meat offering that could throw us off when we when we think of meat we think of steak or something but actually the meat offering in the Old Testament was a grain offering it was meal and it's in Leviticus chapter 2 and here's the verse again you don't have to turn there but if you want to read about that later you can read about this meal offering it was made of fine flour now watch it was made of fine flour and frankincense. Ah, Christmas. You know, frankincense is, is often referred to the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ because the frankincense was put onto this onto this meal grain offering of fine flour. So then there's two things that couldn't go in this in the meal offering. One was leaven, because leaven speaks of the spread of Corruption, and then there was honey. No honey in the sacrament. Although I would like a little honey on there myself, just because I like honey. But but God said, don't put honey on the meat offering. But then he did say in Leviticus chapter 2, every oblation of thy meal or meat offering shalt thou season with salt. There it is. Every meal offering had salt with it. That's why Jesus said in that verse we just read, every sacrifice shall be salted with salt because every meal offering had salt on it. He says, neither shalt thou suffer or allow the salt of the covenant, the agreement with thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings, thou shalt offer salt. So salt three times. With all your offerings, offer salt. So this was the one bloodless sacrifice and it was offered with salt, and these sacrifices together—what do they do? What do they bring? They bring us peace. Peace with who? Peace with God. If you were living in Old Testament days, you offered these sacrifices, and they bring you peace with God in a relationship with God. And by the way, there's so many, so much I could say here, but I, I just have to say, there's a picture of Jesus. He's pure fine flour. There's no leaven in Jesus, and He is, if you will, salted with salt. He's He's uh, precious and He's pure. Again, salt being like the re- ancient refrigeration that would preserve the food, and and so salt was pure. It was uncorrupt. It was enduring. And so, to give somebody the gift of salt was to give a gift of friendship. It was to give friendship when you gave salt because it was so valuable. Have you ever given anybody a refrigerator? They were your friend. If you if you gave somebody a refrigerator, they were were a close friend of yours, you know, or somebody that you really loved or cared for. But the, the idea of salt having peace with one another is because first the sacrifices bring peace with God. We enter into his covenant. And then we, because we have peace with God, we can have peace with others. So that's what Jesus is saying about the salt of the earth. Have peace with God. Have, be salt. If you're going to be salt on the earth, you're a living sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, but we're the living bread. For Jesus Christ, we're to be salted with salt. We're salt on the earth. We're, we have peace with God. We've entered into a covenant with the Lord, an agreement that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. And so I've been, if you will, I've entered into that agreement of the covenant of Jesus Christ, which it speaks of the covenant of salt. And here we see that phrase even. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel shall offer to the Lord have I given thee and thy sons and thy daughters with thee by a statute forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord. And so here he talks about a covenant, an agreement that was made with the salt. That's so interesting. It's actually quite incredible. So because salt was used to establish this unbreakable covenant... Now, if I've lost you, stick stick with me and see if this makes sense. Salt was used by God to establish a covenant with men. Because salt speaks of what's preserved, what endures, what's pure, what's precious, what's valuable. And so the salt on the sacrifice... Speaks of God establishing an enduring of friendship, an enduring friendship with us as his people. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. And then the covenant of salt, when people would offer salt one with another, now watch this. He says, Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons, by a covenant of salt. So it was an easy step for the people to make, if you will, in Jesus' day, that salt represented friendship. It represented a relationship. And so the whole point I'm making here today is in this illustration, is that we are the salt of the earth. We are to be salt in this world because we have a friendship with God. And because we have a friendship with, with God, we want others to have this friendship with the Lord as well. Be salt means, I'm right with God. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I want, by the grace of God, to help other people see the way to live this life is to follow Jesus Christ. And as we're salt, we're going to build for that. We're going to seek to build what he is building. Now, you know who one of the first, the first time we see Tower in the Bible, I'm only going to get through this point, by the way, the first time we see tower in the Bible, who was building it? Remember? Genesis chapter 11. Thank you. A man named Nimrod. Why was he building that tower? For himself. For his name. He was building that tower for his name. He wanted to be great. He wanted all the world to worship him. He wanted all the world to be under his authoritative control. He was a globalist. He was an ancient globalist. Ancient political dictator, tyrant. And he wanted to control everybody and everything. And so he wanted to build a tower to heaven so everybody could see how great he is. Beloved disciples of Jesus Christ, we're not here to build something great for ourselves. We're here to build the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. We want his name to be great. A disciple of Jesus Christ labors in building for his glory so that others would know that Jesus is great. If you're here today, And you don't know Jesus as your Savior, thank you for coming. You honor us with your presence. And we're just here simply to say, Jesus is Lord. You have life because of him. All things were created by him. And yet the creator became your sacrifice to die on the cross for you. And that's why we're here in church. That's why God's people love the Bible. That's why we love to sing. Because we're here building the church of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And we need to be fighting the battles of the Lord. If we're salt on the earth, we're going to be building and battling. That's what I said earlier. That salt seems in my mind to tie together these three illustrations. That we need to take to heart. And that we need to understand as the disciples of Jesus Christ. We're here to battle. Now, remember that one of the great battles in the Bible? It was between David and Goliath. You know the story. Now, we, So what side are you on? What side are you on? Are you on David's side? Or Goliath's side? Pick. You have to pick. You can't be in the middle. You choose. Whose side are you on? I'll tell you who side of, I'm on David's side. You know why? Because out of David will come forth Jesus Christ. If Goliath kills David, the plan to bring Jesus Christ into the world is done. God said the Messiah was going to come through David. Think of that. God's risking his, his the coming of his son into the world with a battle between a giant and a little boy, a young man. And Goliath was the enemy of God. What side are you on? You're either going to be a follower of Jesus Christ or you're going to be a follower of the devil. There's really only there's two sides here. I hate to make it so plain and simple, but that's the truth. There's light and there's darkness. And so we're in a battle and we want to fight. As David told Goliath, I come to you, In the name of who? The Lord of hosts. I come to you in the name of the Lord. Because whose, whose battle was David fighting? The battle is the Lord's. That's the kind of disciple we need to be. We need to fight the Lord's battles, not our battles. We have to pick our battles carefully. And we have to make sure that we're truly fighting the battles for the Lord and for His glory and that are founded on His Word and His truth. And so, beloved, I'll just stop right there and just say, we need to count the cost and consider these three illustrations. That we are builders in a great work. We are battlers in a great warfare. And we are to be salt. And we are to spread the love and the friendship of Jesus Christ as His salt. We are called to be a disciple. Will you be a disciple? Count the cost. Let's stand together as we pray. Let's pray. Jesus is going to go on to share that His disciples have to take the cross. And we're going to sing about that in just a moment. That whoever doth not bear His cross, that is, die to self. And die with Him. Die to your purposes. Die to your goals. And let His goals, which are the best... You know, people are lost today in the sense they don't know who they are. People are flailing around for an identity And they're doing the most, they're they're doing things that we could not have imagined anybody could do just a few years ago. So dear friends, find your identity in Jesus Christ. Come to Him. His way is the best. His plans, He made you. As the Creator, He knows what's best for all of us. And as our creator, he's made us for himself. That we might serve him. That we might battle for him. That we might build for him. That we might be salt for him. But we need to take that one-way journey and die and deny ourselves daily and follow Jesus. Count the cost. It's worth it. It is worth it to follow Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here today that is not a Christian, I would just beg of you, implore of you, to consider your soul. Consider where you would spend eternity. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you're going to enter the Father's kingdom, which is the kingdom of His dear Son, Jesus Christ, you enter by Him through His name, through His great name, and through His work, His great work that He did by shedding His blood for you, dying for your sins, dying the death He did not deserve, dying the death you don't want to, t- to die. And He rose again. He rose again. He's alive. Would you call on Him? If you're here today and you're not saved, I beseech you, I implore you to be born again. As Paul even said in 2 Corinthians, we pray you in Christ's dead. We pray you, we beg of you, be reconciled to God. I'm seeking to persuade you. Yes, absolutely, because this world will persuade you against God. I'm persuading you for the truth. Help us, Lord. I pray that those who are under the sound of my voice not saved, that they would turn to you and be saved. And then I just want to address very quickly those who are Christians. How many would say, Pastor Matt, I don't understand everything. But I have put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and counting the cost as I understand it. I want to be a builder for the Lord. I want to be a battler for the Lord. I want to be salt for the Lord in this world. And I want to live for His glory. Can I just see your hand? Just put your hand up and hold it up as a testimony of your faith and love for Jesus and to follow Him. Thank you, Lord. You see all of our hands. And may you work mightily in every heart, in every life. May you bless us, Lord God, to to not grow weary in well-doing. Lord, many have begun this, this fight and this race, and they go back in the day of battle. Help us not. Help us to continue. Help us to follow. Help us to count the cost. And you may put your hands down. In Jesus' name, amen.